Why you bring me here? Why, what do you mean? Seen partner. That job? No, not at all. <laughs> then what, boy? I don't see point. Um, when I when I get up on stage in front of people, it's like all I can think about is uh, what if what if they laugh at me or if I embarrass myself. Mm -hmm. um, but you, man, you're like fearless, and I just I, I want to feel that too. Well, it's the scene. Oh, you want to you want to do a scene here? Uh, okay, uh, yeah. Good day, sir. Uh, good day. Come on, you have to be louder. Hey, Tommy, I just I don't. Don't worry about these people. They're only you and they're only me. Now do it. For Jack. So, uh, so stood, stood he in, in the Greek statue of old, grasping the lightning bolt. Great. Now, we're at the top of a mountain. Okay. The rain pouring, green going, and the lightning, everything. Okay. Very far right. That's it. And what are these particular precautions of yours? Yes, it's a real joy to be doing this. We're, we're taking ourselves to a new medium, and we're having fun with it. So, Does this mean that technically we're DJ? Uh, technically, we do join the ranks <laughs> of uh, Ricky Gervais, Stephen Merchant, and Carl Pilkington now. That's true, we do. Oh my god. And we're on, yeah. we're on British radio, too. Exactly, exactly. That's amazing. So... We should, we, we should introduce ourselves, because again, this is kind of our repilot. Um, not many people get a second first chance, but uh, we do. Um, I'm Austin Shin. I am Albert Wilts Fong. We are, as you might notice, Americans. Yes, we are. We are, we are Yanks, as it were. And uh, we've been doing this podcast for about five years. It'll be five years in March. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's we almost have 100 episodes, well, more than 100 episodes, because there are a number of unnumbered ones, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> so more like 120, but shh. We have done so much. We have covered so many films over the course of uh, our run. We've covered everything from the greatest films ever made to the absolute worst. Uh, we've looked at Iranian cinema. We've looked at Irish animated films. And then we've looked at, uh, then we've looked at American uh, Christ Christian exploitation films. And we're not done with that, oh boy. We're not done with that. <laughs> as much as we'd like to be. Oh yay, there's a third one coming <sighs> and we have to watch. You know we're going to have to cast on it, you know. We're going to have to. We're going to have to bring Thomas along. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, a, a little background on us. How did we get started doing this? Uh, you know, uh, we've been friends for a good many years, uh, since about 20, since about 2010. Yeah, that's seven years now. Eight. Eight? Eight? It's it is 2018. Holy God. Okay. Yeah. We met because, um, well, shall we tell them that story? Because it's fun. <laughs> we have a mutual ex. 
we have a mutual ex-girlfriend. Yes, we true. do. I mean, we we each dated her four years apart. So I mean, yeah. it's not like you know there was like a big to do, but no. but it's a fun story nonetheless. Yeah, in fact, we actually met through her. Um, That's true. So you know, we're we've done this again for a good many years. He was the videographer at my wedding. I should warn people that in the background they may hear a little girl talking and throwing things. Uh, that's my daughter, Lola, <laughs> who is 19 months old. And Don't worry, she's adorable. She is adorable. She is adorable. She's also crazy. She's also crazy. <laughs> so we're in a unique position here because we're, we're kind of coming back around to our first episode. This is our first episode on this format. And why not go back to the subject that started the podcast? Um, our first episode that we did was on The Room. Tommy Wiseau's, uh, whatever you call it, a, a thing unto itself. His magnum opus. His magnum opus. Yes. We we did an episode on that. We named our podcast after it in a roundabout way. We did. Um, I have an autograph of uh, Greg Sestero uh, hanging in my room. Um, we, we, we are huge huge fans of the film and uh i have a signed copy of the script as well as like it came with a framed like one of his framed i almost oops i almost said mugshot but that's not appropriate um it's close to accurate though (laughs) yes uh what do you call those headshots headshots thank you i was close okay uh he sent one of those along and (laughs) signed it and he Wrote something like, Dear Albert, love is blind. Love, Tommy. Uh, so I framed it and put it on my wall next to my family. That's how much I love this movie. Yeah, we we, <laughs> we are huge fans. When uh, Greg Sestero's memoir, The Disaster Artist, came out, we did an episode on that. When Tommy Wiseau's fiasco of a TV show came out, oh. we, did an epi- we did an entire series covering each episode. Oh. Yes, we are such fans that we have seen every episode of The Neighbors. And let me tell you, oh. fandom hurts sometimes, people. It does. Fandom hurts. It does. Oh, God. No, don't. That's so bad. Never watch it. Just listen to our episodes. That's all you'll need. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, that's that's where we're coming from on this. And so conveniently, as we're doing this, the the film version of uh, Greg Sestero's book has come out. I was hoping, like I knew that it was, that I knew it would, but I was hoping, like reading the book, because the book is extremely filmable. Um, I was really hoping that they would come up with come out with a decent adaptation of it. I knew when I was reading it the same. I was the same way. I knew when I was reading it. I knew this is gonna get filmed because it's just too good not to. If you haven't read the book, it is quite possibly one of the funniest things ever put in print. It is. It's, yeah, for those not familiar with The Room, we should backtrack a bit. It is baffling. Uh, Like, there are lots of, like, scenes that go, like, scenes and plot lines that go nowhere. Uh, You know, characters kind of go, like, are switched in and out. Uh, with other characters like they're establishing shots that uh, don't need to be there and of course at the center of it is Tommy which 
he is a thing. <laughs> he is a thing. Up. Yes, and and just everybody's trying their best. <laughs> Everybody um, is trying their best. God love them. Yeah, and knowing the story of it doesn't really diminish the love of it. Like doesn't like knowing the reasons why. I don't know. It's it's still baffling, even knowing like why things are the way they are in the film. Oh, I I would have the argument that knowing everything behind it makes it that much better to watch it. It is. Be- it does because you're you're watching it knowing okay, at every possible moment when something seemed bizarre, the story behind why it was bizarre is even crazier. Yes, which like case in point the uh, the spoons like that. It's the apartment is uh, the 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 room in question is littered with framed photos of spoons, and the reason behind that is because the set decorator went frames, so Tommy's just like, oh whatever, we need to get filming. Just go out into a. Fr-. <laughs> he sent their production people out to a frame store, got some frames which had framed spoons in them, and he didn't bother to like switch them out. <laughs> Yeah. He said, that it's, it's good enough, let's get filming. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Nothing about it makes sense. It is a strange... Again, it is it is non-sequitur, the movie. But when you know the stories behind everything, again, it doesn't make any more sense. But it does make it more interesting. Um, I, I, I highly recommend the book uh, by uh, Greg Sestero and Tom Bissell. There's an interesting story that came out as the uh, movie version was coming out that uh, Tom Bissell, the co-writer, didn't actually want to write it because he had already written an article on the production of The Room, which inspired Sestero to do the book, and uh, didn't want to do it because he was like, look, I've already done this. I've been there. And what Sestero sold him on was, look, I've got a lot more stories about Tommy because I knew him for many years before this. That's the story of the book. And and really, the story the book is half and half. And I think you could have easily taken either half and made a really interesting movie. It's the these two very interesting stories that intersect in, in the book. And um, so, as we said, it was inevitable it was going to get filmed. What wasn't inevitable was what the film came out looking like. I firmly think you could have had so many different versions of this movie uh you could have had a really broad hollywood comedy you could have had a really almost like fly on the wall indie film made of it kind of honestly expected yeah that was the angle i was expecting especially when james franco was the one that took it on because he hasn't made a mainstream film yet it really should be stated he hadn't made a mainstream film yet yeah not yet because if you look at all of his other films they're these strange odd diversions at one point he made a movie about an imagined scene from the 1980 debacle cruising and he made an entire film about it and about trying to reconstruct this lost scene he is not a, a conventional filmmaker um Let's get this out of the way. Yes, he's a profoundly problematic figure. We're not going to get into that. Yeah. We're just going to acknowledge that, yeah, that guy has got some serious issues. And uh, no, we, we the film room does not endorse the personal lives of anybody that we are about to discuss. Nah. 
I mean, it's fitting because Tommy also has some person has some profound issues himself. Well, that we're that we're going to get into. That we're going to get into. We can't escape that. Um, that is the subject of the film. For the most part, that is the subject of the film. Um, so you know, you really—it's it, one of those things. There was no way of knowing what he was going to do, and really, I think for much of the production, I didn't know what he was going to do, at least in the early going of it, until I saw who he tapped to write the film. Um, he very easily could have gotten someone inside of his circle to write the film. The guys that he went to were Newstatter and Weber, uh, the guys that did 500 Days of Summer, which, for my money, is about as solid a screenplay as I've ever read. Um, you look at it on the page, and that thing hums. That thing just hums on the page. It, it really does. It's And it's a tremendous film. I, I love the film. Um, but they're re- they are mainstream, down-the-line Hollywood writers. Uh, they did The Fault in Our Stars. These are not the guys that you go to to get a strange, experimental, indie take on this material. They're the guys that you go to to get the classic take on this material. But when they came on board, I think that should have really been a tip-off to everybody that, oh, Franco is really going to try and make this a mainstream film. And indeed he did, because the grand oddity of The Disaster Artist is that while the book uh, and the movie tell this story of a sh- and uh, the uh, movie by which I mean the room are these strange works that are kind of outsider. I mean, the, the disaster artist isn't an outsider book, but it depicts the making of an outsider movie in a way that could have easily lent itself to an outsider film in its own right. The disaster artist, frankly, isn't all that different from a Judd Apatow uh, who is in the movie uh, produced. Yes, he, is. Uh, he is in a great scene too. It really isn't all that different from, you know, you put this in the rest of his of Franco's canon with Apatow, like this is the end, and which okay, he didn't. That wasn't an Apatow, but you know what I mean. A lot of the people in this film are like Apatow alumni. Like they were all, most of them were in uh, Freaks and Geeks. That's where I kind of yeah. That's where I kind of pin. Well, it goes for it goes a little further back than that, but Freaks and Geeks I think was the big break for a lot of these people. Yeah. Well, it was the first thing that a lot of them ever did. So, yeah. And Charlene Yee is in it, who was in um, Knocked Up. That's the first time I saw her. It was nice to see her in this. I, I... Yeah. I know I know her right now as Ruby in uh, Steven Universe. Yeah. Yeah, she is. Uh, so you've got her. I mean, let's see. Um, of course, um, his eternal uh, co-star Seth Rogen is in this. And I, I, can I just point out how cool it, it must be? To be working with someone continuously that you have known since 1999. I mean, you really can tell that those two guys just love working together. Yeah. Um, plus, so he, Seth, you know, plus it, it helps that he makes a perfect uh, Sandy. Yeah. Yeah. Seth Rogen's character, by the way, in this movie is very much the voice of reason. He's the one that's just walking around going, wait, what? Yeah. Um, Fittingly enough, for a movie about the making of a bad movie, all three co- all three co-hosts from How Did This Get Made are in the film. <laughs> I love that. Um, Jason Man Jason Manzukis is in this. Um, who I got to point out by the way, his work on uh, the Netflix animated show that he's on mm-hmm. is incredible. That's BoJack, right? 
No, he's on. Nope. Uh, what's the name of it? Yeah, he. I know he's on BoJack at least once because mm-hmm. everybody in there. Uh, but is, yeah. it, but it's the one about puberty. Oh, Big Mouth. Yeah, Big Mouth. Manzukas is amazing on that. He I is need... the best thing about that by far. I need to watch that. <laughs> it's honestly pretty funny. It's it's honestly some pretty wild stuff. Um, so you've got him. You've got um. Let's see. So you got all so Jason Manzukas, Paul Shear, who gets one of the best <laughs> scenes in the entire film, is in it, and then uh, Shear's wife June Diane Raphael is in it, and she also gets a great scene. This whole movie is like a lot of people who show up and maybe only get one great scene. I mean, so yeah, so you've got you know those people. You've got um, God uh, Hannibal Buress is in it. Yes, it was. It was great to see him. He's uh, one of the owners of the uh, of the place that they film in. Yeah, it's him and Manzukas uh, as the owners, and they're just sitting there. When when Wiseau comes in, he's like, well, "I just want to buy this equipment." They're like, "Okay." Yeah, it's and that's a perfect like. I love how they put uh, for as quick as this as they go through the material and how you know for how much they like fold it in on itself to and compress it. Uh, they do put a lot of the details from the book in there. Like, you yeah, know, that scene is a good example of that, which is, you know, the fact that Tommy actually uh, bought that equipment and it's not it's not the proper practice to do that because uh, like cameras, lenses, all that uh, like film equipment becomes obsolete after something like six months. Yeah, I mean. Which was far longer, which that's a far shorter time than this movie took to make. Um, the uh, so, so anyway, so you've got that. Let's see, going down through the cast list. Um, fittingly enough, one of the big things about the movie is that uh, Greg Sestero, who played Mark in the, in the room, was in real life Wiseau's closest friend. So fittingly enough, to play uh, Sestero in the film, Franco went to his own brother. Mm-hmm. So you got that, and then like to play his, uh, to play Greg's girlfriend. Well, they didn't think very hard. Um, Allison Brie plays uh, uh, Greg's girlfriend, and in real life, she's Dave Franco's wife. Funny how all this is kind of fitting into place. It is. So, I mean, the story of the movie is really very simple. The reason we haven't gotten to it is because it's really very simple. It's the story of these two guys who meet at an acting class. Greg is. He's very much the, okay, he's conventionally pretty, but he's not all that talented. Mm-hmm. He's, he's nothing special is the idea about him, is that there's yeah. nothing all that special or notable about him. Mm-hmm. Um, there really, there's nothing about him that stands out. Tommy, on the other hand, is a freak show of a human being. Mm-hmm. He claims to be much younger than he is. Um, the makeup, by the way, on Franco to turn him into Wiseau is pretty incredible. Yeah, I mean, you watching the film, like, okay, I've watched The Room, I don't know how many times. Same. It's, like, it's, I'll just throw it on, like, when I'm in the mood. Like, it's incredible, and I've shown it to friends, I've, I'm about to introduce it to another friend, uh, who I run a show with on, uh, our website, The Ship Has Sailed. Uh, so I've seen Tommy in action, I don't know how many times. I mean, I have his face on my wall, for God's sake. And watching this film, 
like I could not like he just kind of disappeared into it. I I think the only real difference is that Franco is a little bit thinner. That could be, yeah. I think he's a little bit thinner, and of course he's much younger, to say the least. Mm -hmm. Though again, since nobody knows how old Tommy really is, then who knows how much? (laughs) How much younger? Yeah. Um. But he, it's good makeup. It's a lot of good acting. Franco Mm -hmm. is fantastic in this film. Um, Well, he spent. He spent a lot of time with Tommy, like, working on the accent. And and it never comes off as a joke. No. You would, because, like, again, in the bad version of this movie, I could see it being an over-the-top, ridiculous farce of an accent. Mm-hmm. But he really makes him a character. He really makes him a person. It's not everybody's bad impression of Tommy that you've seen 60 billion times. Mm-hmm. It's a, he... You really believe that this guy, when the camera isn't on him, is off doing his own thing, and you're just not seeing it. And that's that's good work. That's good work put into the performance, and it's probably why Franco has gotten so much awards attention. Um, he just, of course, picked up the Golden Globe for Best Actor in a Comedy, mm-hmm. <laughs> and will probably be picking up an Oscar nomination for this. I'll be shocked if he doesn't. Shocked. Uh, yes. He really <laughs> does make – it's really not a joke. For him, he really creates a flesh and blood character. Uh, I think everybody thinks this. It would be irony if he won the Oscar for this, just because. Yeah. Just because uh, Tommy ran the room for two weeks in a theater, just so it would it could uh, apply to uh, win Oscars. You know, the funny thing is, I can't tell you right now who I think the front runner is for best actor. Yeah. I can't. I, I could not tell you with a gun to my head who I think is going to win. Hmm. It's a strange year for that. I Honestly, right now, I couldn't tell you anything about how I think the Oscars are going to go. Hmm. It's weird that it's weird like that. Yeah. Um, but so, so that is kind of strange. I will say, I think uh, Dave Franco, man... Uh, no offense, James, but maybe nepotism wasn't the way to go here. No. Uh, and here's the thing. Dave Franco does a fine job. He's perfectly good. He's, but he, there's just – there's a sense that – I don't know. There's a little something off about his performance. And I think Amanda pointed to it. Greg Sestero is unearthly beautiful. He is. Is the thing. Uh Famously, I know a lot of people who've met him in person and who say, yeah, the room did not do him any favors. Yeah, I've, I've met him in person, and yeah. <laughs> I, I really like the work that uh, is done. You know, I, I really feel like I, I like the work that Dave does, but he just doesn't have that unearthliness. It's, I don't know, it's that strange quality. And also, he, I don't know, he's just maybe a half step off is the thing. But not not bad. I mean, again, I think everybody in the film does a really fine job performance-wise. Um, as that, I really love Seth Rogen's work in this. I mean, I always like Rogen. I I, I have a, a pretty high opinion of him. He seems like he seems like one of the decent ones in this world. And so, I hope so. who knows what who knows what I'm going to find out when I click on. I have a feeling I'm going to turn off this podcast, and turns out he's the Zodiac. Didn't know that. Well, I don't know. I'm. I still. I still think that they're all kind of complicit in what happened 
uh, behind yeah. the, behind the scenes at sausage party, but that's just me. Oh yeah, well that's a different story. That's that's yeah. Um, but it's one of those things. This movie really, it's interesting. As you mentioned that it condenses so much. Mm-hmm. You could have easily done a two hour and fifteen minute movie out of this, and it'll and it gets in and out in ninety eight minutes. It does well, and roughly like it's a it's around the same length as the room actually. Yeah. Which don't tell me that's not intentional. Oh, it's totally intentional. I mean, it uses the same font as the poster. Everything about this movie is intentional. Um, they do a re- again, as you noted, they do a really great job of getting the basic details, like the green screen use. Yes. For those that have seen the uh, teaser trailer with the long scene of Tommy trying to recite the line, the iconic line from the movie, and he just cannot figure it out. That is exactly how it went in real life. And it's not an accident that the movie ends with five minutes of side-by-side comparisons with the room. Yeah. It is such a a, a, a recreation. Um, so I enjoyed that about it. Uh, but it is interesting to me that, again, it gets in and out in about 100 minutes. That's kind of rare nowadays. Um, yeah. Next week I'm going to have a column up on a movie that managed to do to be an epic disaster movie in 71 minutes. <laughs> so... That's something that uh, that'll be up this week uh, on the uh, blog on the 18th. It'll be up on uh, by the 18th. I think um, I know which movie you're going to do. Yes, it's a movie that opened on January 18th, 2008. Which mm, I am not okay with 2008 being a decade ago. I'm sorry. I'm not either. No. I'm not either. I'm not no. either. I'm not either. That was kind of a, you know. It was a big year. Yeah. Most people. I think mark time by specific by what happened in their life in specific years. Two thousand eight, a lot of things happened in my life. Two thousand eight was when I got out on my own and started living my own independent life. Yeah. So you better believe I'm not ready for it to be a decade ago. I say as my nineteen month old stands on me. <laughs> I got a lot of markers. So there is that. There is that. Um. So again, I think it's interesting that it's a quick movie. It gets in. It gets out. It does its job. And I like that. I, I like that. The movie, you get about the first act is, okay, who are these guys? And it really speeds through that material. I mean, you meet Greg, you meet Tommy. They meet. There's the wonderful scene in the diner where they're challenging each other on the read. And it's just wonderful. Mm-hmm. There's so much. There's a lot of joy in this movie. This is a, it's a very feel-good film. And so then, and then from there, it's about okay, we're gonna make the room. You see Greg moving in with Tommy, which happened in real life. Circumstances were a little bit different. Uh, the movie takes a lot of liberties on the personal life a stuff. A lot of liberty. I mean, basically everything with the girlfriend is invented for the movie. Pretty much, like she, she existed, but it wasn't. It wasn't like that. I would really say that she's basically in the film. Almost just so that Franco could give his sister-in-law some work. Yeah, it's which uh, Lord knows, Lord knows she's struggling for work. I say as I roll my eyes. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's it also gives an interesting. Um, it gives a voice to something complex that's in the book that would be hard to film otherwise, which is uh, from from the word go, like when they start dating. Uh, you can see Tommy's like insane jealousy of their relationship and how sh- 
he feels like uh, spending time with her is pulling time away from him. We just need to say what's uh, what's uh, obvious, but it's unspoken. Tommy was so in love with him. Yes. And and that's a little bit more muted for the movie because it's kind of hard to play that between brothers, but it's still there. Yeah, yes. What really makes the film so interesting, I think, in this current climate is the way that it depicts Tommy as an abusive director. Mm-hmm. And this is where I think I've had some really interesting debates with people because people are really divided on does this movie let Tommy off the hook? No. And I'm serious. It does. I don't think it does, but I think it redeems him a little bit more at the end than maybe it should have. Yeah. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. He, uh, they left out some of the more cruel things he had done, like to, um, like all the stuff with how he treated, like the actresses in the film, uh, like Juliet especially, is like dead on accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, he treated her like shit. And, uh, and all the actors and crew, that's pretty dead on accurate, but the, you know, some of the stuff that he did to Greg, uh, is a little more muted for the film. The movie really puts a much lighter face on their friendship than maybe it should have. Let's get the big detail out. Greg didn't do the room because he was doing a favor for a friend. He did it because he needed a car. Yes, that's right. Yeah. He had to talk about, like he was going to be the like a producer on it and that was it. Mm-hmm. Just a guy in the background, like he didn't. They already had an actor uh, for Mark, and uh, yeah, they they left out kind of the horrifying, you know. And I I understand, like for short for like film shortening purposes, why they left out the Tom Ridley. Although they did make a nod to it, um, they did. There's there's a quick reference. Yeah, but 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 there needed to be more. Yeah, there, there needed, needed to, be more. to be more. Like the. The big thing I'm thinking of is that the night that he took Greg out in his car and, like, basically terrified him and, mm-hmm. you know, told him to get out in the middle of the highway and then basically did, like, a like a little power play move on him, on their friendship. Yeah. It's really, really super abusive. Yeah. Th- th- this movie... I... This movie makes Tommy a nicer person than he is. I mean, I just... We have to say that. Which... Yeah, which, you know, I guess Tommy did not like the book. Well, that's... I wonder yeah. why. Um, but he, he likes the movie better. Yeah, and, and I, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, because it is a movie. But we need to stress, this is a film version of what happened. Mm-hmm. That said, it still makes him look like a right bastard in a healthy amount of the film. Oh, it does, um, yes. You know, what's interesting is there's the point in the movie where he refers to the birds. And how Hitchcock acted on the set of The Birds. What's interesting is one of the things that he did, that Hitchcock did, was he made a doll of Tippi Hedren in a coffin and presented her, presented the doll to her little girl. Now that's crazy and creepy and disgusting. Mm -hmm. The little girl in question is in The Disaster Artist, though, which I think is interesting. That I was not aware. Yeah, she's in the opening scene. Oh, as Jean Shelton? Yeah, Melanie oh. Griffith is in the opening scene. Oh, of course. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So so there's a nice subtle reference there. Yeah. Um the stuff about him not buying air conditioning an air conditioner and um uh Carolyn Minot overheating, that's completely true. That's true. Her speech her speech that she gives, completely true. Yeah. The other thing that they did, you know, 
where it's interesting because we're talking about the movie making him out to be a little nicer uh, than he actually was, was that in that movie, or in that scene, he was actually a little more, a little meaner to her that because, uh, like, in the book version, he, like, just scrambles to, you know, he, he panics when she... Yeah. Yeah. Because... Because they genuinely got along. He, yeah. he actually really quite liked her. Yeah, and of course um, he wanted to avoid a lawsuit, but... Yeah, he wasn't stupid. <laughs> yeah, but in the, you know, in the film version, he's, he just kind of passes it off. It's, it's interesting, and I, 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 I think that's a good conversation to be having right at this moment. Mm-hmm. You know, directors don't have to be lunatics. Um, famously, mm-hmm. David Lynch is known for running one of the nicest sets anybody's ever been on apparently he is one of the nicest guys to work with i was going to bring yeah i was going to that's what i was thinking of too because i think he i saw a quote on that not too yeah yeah not too long ago where he's like look what what do i gain from running this like a tyrant we're all in this together who should want why would anybody want to hate to come to work if they hate coming to work they're gonna hate what they're working on and it's not gonna be any good and of course famously you know, don't forget, Lynch's lead in Dune was Kyle MacLachlan, for God's sake. Probably about the most unpleasant movie he's ever worked on. Oh, that he he plays uh, uh, Dale Cooper, right? Exactly. Oh, I didn't know exactly. he was in Dune. Wow. He's the lead in Dune. Ha! Oh, I can see it now. That's funny. So that should show you how much people like working with Lynch. <laughs> Yeah. And of course, famously, Laura Dern just has the sweetest things to say about him. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Lynch is awesome. Uh, but yeah. I, 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 th- I really think there's something true to that. And I think that we're in this moment where we're looking at abuse of power. And I, I think it's nice. As I said, I feel like the movie in the last few minutes, What's... basically what the movie is trying to do is symbolize the what would come next for the room. I, 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 th- I think it's interesting that the movie, you know... It it really condenses a lot of these things into single scenes. I think it's interesting that it does that with the ending. It does that with the blow up with uh, Greg when they're doing the football scene where it condenses down. Okay. In reality, they went through DP after DP after DP. They went through everybody quit by the end of the film. Condensing that down to one scene where it's like, look, they're all gone Mm -hmm. is fine. I'm fine with that. Because, again, this is an adaptation. You can't do just the same thing over and over. You know, you can't do the same thing that worked in the book. Yes. Because it's a different medium. And, of course, the, the movie also makes up things. Like the, the beard shaving scene, it was actually a little more complicated than that. It was just one day Tommy was like, okay, you're shaving your beard. Yeah, which he wanted to keep uh, so he could shave it after so he could go... No, I wasn't in that film. <laughs> what are you talking about? But he could, yeah, yeah. But I love what they, I, I love what they do with that because they, a, have an excuse to have Brian Cranston in there. Which is fun. <laughs> as himself. It's nice to see. It's nice to see him. Yeah, always. And and B, yeah, it does create some kind of dramatic tension where he has to choose between helping his friend and his career, basically. And that's really where I feel like the writers came in and. You know, because that is an invention of theirs. That's the advantage of hi- having hired real writers mm-hmm. versus hacks. Mm-hmm. Because you got, you got, yes, this is the Hollywood version. 
but it wasn't messy. It was clean. And, and I like that. I like that this is the clean version of this story versus the Hollywood. You know, I could just I could see this movie going so wrong. That's just it. I could see this movie going so wrong and it doesn't. It doesn't step wrong. Um, yeah. I, you know, there are other little details again throughout. We could spend this entire cast just going through what was changed. Like Greg's mother doesn't have a French accent. Yeah, which she did in real life. because She was French. Um, they do kind they do kind of nod a little bit to Tommy's utter hatred of the French. Yeah, they do. Notice, notice that they all notice that he always that Johnny in the uh, room always refers to Lisa as his future wife. Yes. Why? Because they're because Wiseau wanted to avoid a French word. Oh, fiance. Yeah. I yeah. did not realize or th- that makes perfect sense. Oh god. Yeah, there's yeah, there's so much of that. Um. Wow. Again. And, and and certainly one of the big areas where they are completely making things up is at the end with the premiere where so many of the people that showed up in the premiere in the movie did not in real life. No, like, yeah, they were not invited like Sandy and uh, yeah. and uh, Raphael, the first DP. And yeah, yeah, I was I was kind of surprised at that. Like, I've. I've read the book like four times at this point. Like the same, yeah. I, well, I read it and then I listened to Greg read it three times. <laughs> My advice to people, by the way, is if you're going to be exposed to the book, and you should be because the book is incredible. Mm-hmm. This is the time for the audiobook because yes. Greg's impression of Tommy dead on. It's it's the kind of impression of someone you can only do if you know them intimately. Yes, like it. Like, like there's it's almost like Tommy is in there reading with him. Which, yeah, which he's it's not. but yes. It's dead on. Mm-hmm. It is so dead on, it's scary. And um I highly recommend it. But anyway, getting back to what you were saying. What was I saying? We were talking about the premiere. The premiere. Oh yeah. Yeah, so many people are not in there just because uh like uh, Okay, yeah. Uh, I was really surprised that they put Sandy in there. And I forget, like, that was kind of a weird thing to see. Like, I think of all the changes, that was the weirdest for me. Just those people being in the place where they weren't and how they would react to it. And I get why it was done. It was done to give to make them be the Greek chorus reacting to it. Right. And, <laughs> you know, like, Chris R. is there. Yes. And let's talk for a moment about that wonderful cameo. Zach Efron. Zach Efron delivers that wonderful fabled line in the movie. Yeah, as ar- arguably uh, the best actor on the room. Uh, yeah. Chris R., like the guy who played Chris R., who was just there for like two days of shooting. And he plays it dead on, like as the book describes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Efron is legitimately intimidating in this. Mm-hmm. He he he's really proven himself a strong comic actor. Lola is sitting on my neck. No, no, baby girl, daddy is trying to talk. Um, <laughs> joys of being a father, y'all. Joys of being a father. Yeah, yeah. I uh, I should point out I'm Lola's daytime caregiver, actually. <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm I'm sitting here with my uh, little lady and. She is sucking her thumb and just being a cute little girl, because that's what she is. 
So anyway, yeah. So I, I, I liked Zach Efron's cameo. He's really emerged as quite a talented comedic actor. Um, that was fun. Again, man, the bench on this movie is insane. Um, mm-hmm. But but with the premiere, what I what I like about that scene, and it is so very fictionalized, is that it's kind of trying to take the reaction that the movie would wind up getting, in you know, and moving it forward and saying, okay, we're going to we're going to condense down what really happened in real life, and we're going to capture it, you know in a way that we can get it clear, which is Tommy coming to have this complicated relationship with the film where he's frustrated by the fact that people laughed at it, but he also tries to then roll with it and just say, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. The movie was released in 2003. Am I correct? Yes, you're correct. Okay. I'm going to, I'm just going to ask you right now, how many movies from 2003 do you remember? Uh, <laughs> Yeah, mm. I can think of about off the top of my head seven movies from 2003 that I think still matter to me. Yeah. Um, do you hear people talking about Mystic River anymore? No. <laughs> no, you don't hear people talking about Mystic River. You don't hear people talking about Cold Mountain. Mm. Hell, you didn't hear people talking about Cold Mountain when it was released. Um, yeah. You don't hear people talking about the big Oscar movies of 2003. Yeah. The, I mean, you hear them talking about the movie that won best picture because oh, Chicago, that's right. No, no. 2003. The, I mean the, the winner that would have come out the 2003 release that won in best picture in its year was Lord of the Rings return of the King. Oh, that's right. Though people do still talk about Chicago. I'm glad you brought that up because people sure as hell still talk about Chicago. It's mm-hmm. kind of funny when you look back at in 2002, everybody was annoyed that that movie won Best Picture. <laughs> but now here we are years later, and that's probably the most popular film of the nominees, aside from Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the one that people still talk about. That's the one people remember. Oh, and Rob Marshall sure should have won Best Director for it, because mm-hmm. it, it would have meant that, it would have meant that the rapist didn't win at Best Director. Oh, God. Now, which one was that? That was Polanski's Oscar oh, for the pianist. Whoa. No. Yeah, no. <sighs> Look, Polanski shouldn't have been allowed to make the pianist in the first place, and it is a brilliant film. I'm not going to take anything away from the artistry of it, but Polanski shouldn't have been allowed to make it. Ugh. But you see the point that I'm making here, which is the room has lasted. It's mattered. Mm-hmm. More than a lot of the mainstream releases. I mean... Do you hear people talking about Terminator 3 today? <laughs> no. And I like that one. <laughs> you don't hear people talking about Terminator 3. You don't hear them talking about... I mean, the, if they talk about Hulk, they're not happy about it. No. <laughs> but but why so made something that spoke to people. Tonight, it's going to play on 600 screens. Mm-hmm. Across the country. Yes. Oh, yeah, that's right. Tonight's the uh, grand re-release of it, and the first ever nationwide release of it, Unrift. That's right. It's Fathom Events is doing uh, yeah is doing that. Yeah, so it's getting this nationwide screening. How many movies can say that that they made that much of a dent? And that's the idea that the movie goes for. Now, is the room a tremendously misogynistic piece of work? 
Yes. We should address that. Yes. Obviously. <laughs> Obviously. This is a profoundly misogynistic work. And I have a theory that a lot of the people that really like The Room mm-hmm. – because I know this is how I feel about it. Mm-hmm. We don't enjoy the misogyny of it. We enjoy how badly the movie handles the misogyny. Mm-hmm. Because the misogyny is disgusting, but it's also highlighted how disgusting it is. It is. And I think that makes it – and that's interesting because you can look at the misogyny of The Room and compare it to something like, say, the misogyny in a Judd Apatow film, which is far prettier, far more cleaned up. Yeah. This, but also there. Yeah. And this is just so blatant how uh, just in the way Lisa acts, in the way uh, her mother, like, talks. Yeah. Like, oh, there's not a good woman in the entire film. No. Whereas in The Disaster Artist, you feel for Juliet. And again, there's that wonderful speech given to uh, the uh, – we're just going to – for the sake of clarity, we're just going to go with the actress June Diane Raphael's speech that she gives where she gives insight into the film. And it's so good. Yeah, which is uh, – to be clear, I think that um... – like the theory, like I have the theory that um, everybody in the room is is a, has been a person in his life, and then someone says, "Well, who's Lisa?" Like, well, the universe. Yeah, that's that's a great speech in the hands of a gifted actress, and and I love it. I love that speech. Mm-hmm. And and I've heard some people make the argument that Franco sands off some of the more unsavory parts of of Why So. Because those are the parts of himself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's possibly true. I think that's a really fair argument. And that in and of itself then adds to the meta-fascination of this film. Because I do think The Disaster Artist is an excellent film. I, I, I know that it came and went in the UK really fast. And frankly, it came and went in America pretty fast, too. Yeah. Um, it only played in Little Rock for two weeks, and then it was gone. Oh. I think uh, I think it's still playing here in some places. It, it we didn't it didn't even play. That's what's weird is it didn't play our art house. Ooh, it didn't even play in our art house theater. It uh, played uh, of all places at uh, the theater you've been to. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's where it played. Oh wow! And it actually, when we saw it, it played to a pretty good crowd. I don't know. Movies don't last in Little Rock very long. Uh, Train Spotting Two was out in a week. Yeah. Uh, it did not play long at all in Little Rock. I'm glad I got. I'm glad by a sheer fluke I was able to go see it. Uh, by a sheer fluke I was off on that day, and so Amanda was like, "Oh, go see a movie that day," and that's what I chose to go see. Mm-hmm. Oh man, that's a good one. That's a real good one. Um, yeah. So again, the, the, I think this is a really good movie. I think this is a really good film. I will say I think Franco's direction is pretty unnotable. Mm-hmm. All things considered, it's very point and shoot. It's not showy. It's not flashy. Yeah, which honestly, it doesn't need to be for this. I think his real focus on this was the per- the performance that he gave. Yeah, yeah, the performance and just the story really kind of speaks for itself. And and I think it's funny that throughout the movie, there's that whole running theme of it real Hollywood movie. It, you know, talking about that's what why so wants the room to be, and it's not. But the disaster artist sure as hell is. Mm-hmm. 
Like, I think it's interesting that New Line only sold it off to uh, A24 to release because they were better at handling the marketing to a hipper, younger audience. Uh, They retain uh, international distribution on it. And uh, I think they may even have home distribution. I'm not sure. Hmm. But I I think it's interesting that it was a a New Line Cinema release. Yeah. Um, And they're they're still credited on the film. They are, yeah. You know, I, I just I think that's interesting that in the end, it is a real movie. This is absolutely a mainstream buddy picture, and I think that's interesting. Um, it is. I don't know. Those are my thoughts on the film. Do you have anything more to add? Yeah, we covered a lot. Uh, it's uh, yeah, the actors playing the actors were great. Uh, I thought they they looked to the part they supposedly reshot about twenty five minutes of the room. For this, uh, like just for that last scene, like with the theater, like let's talk about the th- like the scene where they actually yeah. shoot, because that's that's not in the book. The book ends with like the movie starting, like the the theater being plunged into darkness, and then that's how the book ends. But the movie keeps going past that point into the first screening, and this is kind of an imagined reaction, uh, yeah, for all involved, but. I think it does a good job. I did think of one other thing I did want to bring up, which is I have to ask the question. Mm -hmm. This is one of two movies I've seen about a legendary bad movie. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, everybody's going to compare this to Ed Wood. Yes. And I do think Ed Wood is probably the better film. Mm. Yeah. Because it it does come from better writers and a better director. I could argue. Yeah, that could be argued. Yes. However, coincidentally, both also star an actor with serious issues with women. <laughs> That's true also. My, what a common theme that is. I will say one interesting thing about Ed Wood that doesn't come up often enough. You know who Ed Wood, the actual person, was like a dead ringer for? Who? Oh, Johnny Depp. Yes. Yeah, in real life, Ed Wood was a, a, a very strikingly good-looking guy. And so casting Johnny Depp was actually really brilliant. Like... He actually, there was a strong physical resemblance there. I think that was interesting. Um, but 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 the movie that I want to talk about is best worst movie. Yeah, I I knew that's where you're going with that because I I love best worst movie so much. I do prefer best worst movie to this. I will say that I have seen best worst movie probably more than the film that it's about. Same because it's a comfort food movie for me. Yeah. It, it it's I own it on DVD and I throw it on every so often when I just want to feel good. Mm-hmm. I do prefer that to this because I think best worst movie, for one thing, has the advantage of being a documentary. Mm-hmm. For another thing, I also think it has the advantage of being just a better, warmer film. Mm-hmm. And just knowing that also, well, it's like this, you know, you're. The room you're dealing with, you know, a person who has passion. Like, that's the thing about the room that that is so attractive is because, like, it's it's bad and poorly made, but it's so passionately bad and poorly made. Yeah. Uh, and, but however, it does have some troubling things behind that and, you know, behind the personality behind it. And, you know, it did have a kind of troubling production. Uh, Troll 2, I don't think really has any of that like as far as 
like any of the troubles. Like it's still no, it's still passionately made. But oh, it absolutely, is passionately made. Yeah, I, I think what, what what's interesting is, of course, both are about both were made by people who English was not their native language. That's true. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that there is that correlation there. Um, I think it. And I think it's funny the the description for the reasoning behind Troll Two is that they're making fun of vegetarians. I think that's yeah. I think that's hilarious. And the thing is, when you realize that the movie actually starts to really work, it does. Like I think I think that might be the one big difference then between the two movies is I think Troll Two legitimately works on its intended level. It does, yes. In what like I think it's legitimately creepy in places. Mm-hmm. I think that if they'd had the budget. Like, my dream remake would be to remake Troll 2, but play it seriously. Yes. And and really bring out the elements that they were trying to do. Like, translate Troll 2 is what I would want to do. Because I think you could take very few changes, the basic ideas of it, and really make a scary movie. Yes. I think you could, yeah. It's legitimately... So, so as I said... My question then is, which of the two films do you prefer? Uh, as far as Disaster Artist and Best Worst Movie? Best, yeah. Hmm, that's kind of a tough one. Like, as far as, like, I agree with you on the comfort food level, but I think it's one of those things where uh, they're too different for me to kind of put... I can see that. Yeah, I can see that. To put on a level playing field. And I'm probably going to watch this one as a comfort food movie, too. Yeah, it hits the same. It, it hits the same note. Um, it does. It's still kind of a feel-good movie, despite uh, you know everything. <laughs> it's interesting. My mother, when she saw it, because she did see the movie, mm-hmm. she found it profoundly depressing, really, and uh, upsetting because she felt bad for him at the end because he tried so hard mm-hmm. and failed. And I kind of had to say, well, I don't see it that way. Yeah, I see it as that he tried so hard, and the the fact that the disaster artist exists is his happy ending. Yes, yeah. That said, Franco, man, shouldn't have taken the mic out of his hands. Let the man speak. I understand why he did, which is I didn't actually see like the clip, but I saw like a gif of it. Yeah, dude, I understand you. You you were. I understand why because God only knows what he would have said. Except we do know what he would have said, but we didn't know that then, and yeah, <laughs> not a trust. But that said, man, should have let him speak anyway. Yeah, it's the Golden Globes. It's like you got you got to let the man speak. I mean, they, there's a seven second delay. They're covered. Come on. Yeah, they're they're covered. <laughs> and what he would have said was lovely. Yeah, what he would have said is lovely, and also he would have promoted the film. So yeah. Follow your dreams. Follow your dreams. And and that's ultimately the message of this film is follow your dreams. Mm -hmm. Even if you're frankly kind of a terrible person and your dreams are kind of terrible, (laughs) follow them anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Because it really cannot be stressed enough. Tommy Wiseau is funny. He's fascinating. And I cheer him on for getting his dreams made. But he's kind of a terrible human being. Yeah, <laughs> we, we can't ignore that. I I don't know. I just I really enjoyed this movie. I know it's already out of UK cinema, um, but we do recommend seek it out if you can. Um, yeah. So 
I you want you want to close us up? Um, yeah. Um, so, oh gosh, we're gonna have to come up with kind of a new ending here because uh, this is different. This is. <laughs> You can find our backlog at thefilmroom.org. Thefilmroom.org, yes. Uh, there you can also find our contact information, like Twitter, Facebook, all that. Uh, you can also find our... Uh, since we've added a show, we've kind of redeemed it, the Film Room Network. Uh, we have another show that uh, I run with uh, my friend. We go by we go by code names on there. I'm Alfonso, she's Ninny. Uh, called The Ship Has Sailed. It's a more... It's a bit of a looser format, but... Uh, we have fun. It's all nerd stuff. So we're on YouTube and on the feed. And of course, we have to acknowledge our uh, benefactors at Beacon Radio Online. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Thank you for having us. We're going to hopefully give you all something worth listening to. Um, yeah. I don't know what we're going to talk about next week, but we this are going to go next rhythm. week. We are definitely going to go next week. Yes. Um, we're, we're excited to be, oh, yeah, we're excited yeah. to be here. We are, and we're going to try to give y'all some interesting episodes. And so, till then, I'm Austin. I'm Albert. Later, y'all. Later. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Okay. Action. What is line? I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Scene 112, take 13, mark it, action. I did not hit her, I... Okay, okay, line. I did not hit her, it's not true, it's bullshit. I did not hit her, I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Take 17, action. I.